In the name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning and Happy New Year to you. I know we are a bit of a long ways off, but every year around the beginning of May, I start to get a little extra pep in my step. When the magnolias start to bloom and the weather has turned warm, it can only mean one thing. Green peanuts are on the way. About a decade ago, I started boiling my own peanuts and quickly realized that the best peanuts are those that come in the beginning of the season. They're called green, not because they're actually green, uh, but they have higher moisture and so they haven't dried out as long as all most other peanuts. So they have a shorter shelf life, but I tell you what, they are worth it. Uh, that first batch of green peanuts with just the right amount of salt, maybe a little of Old Bay, soaked for just the right amount of time, and it will knock your socks off. When we lived in Clemson a few years back, I made the mistake of uh, thinking that everyone in the South knew about green peanuts. I would spend hours and hours, uh, some days, going to store to store looking for green peanuts. And all the peanuts I could find were either already cooked in the can or prepackaged and woefully disappointing. But one day I came into the local grocery and right there before my eyes was this giant bin of fresh green peanuts, and I almost burst into tears, and I grabbed probably about 15 pounds of them, and as I made my way to the checkout, uh, the cashier, let's just say she was a bit intrigued with my cart, and she asked, are you having a party? And I said, nope, I just got all these peanuts for myself. (laughs) You can imagine the look on her face when she heard me say that, and she in disbelief responded, Okay, you do you. Maybe you've heard that phrase before, you do you. It's become kind of a slogan of our day. Sociologist David Kinneman notes that there is a trend in our day called elective identity, and it's the idea that people can and should be the definers of their own identity, that the individual is the ultimate arbiter of what is true about himself or herself. The question of identity has always been an important one. Answering the question, who am I, has been and will always be a crucial part of what it means to be human. But what is unique today is that the source of one's identity comes from within. Today, many create their own identity by probing the depths of their own hearts. And then they express that identity. And if you don't express it, then you're guilty of one of the greatest crimes of our day, You're not being authentic. You're not being true to yourself. I want to suggest to you this morning that our world around us is in an identity crisis. Now more than ever, people are struggling with the question, who am I? Those today who elect their own identity, no matter how vocal or self-assured they are, they must at the end of the day sheepishly confess that it could all change tomorrow. When identity becomes a matter of how you feel, it is always subject to change at a whim. And so the question for us today is how can we obtain an identity that isn't plastic? How can we get a sense of who we are that isn't shaky or fleeting? How can we lay hold of an identity that won't change in the morning? And what would that actually look like? And what would that mean 
for us? Those are some of the questions I hope to answer this morning. And to do that, I want us to look in perhaps a surprising place. I want us to look at the events recorded in verse 21 of our gospel passage. Luke writes, And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. You may know uh, that yesterday was not only New Year's Day, but also a holy day in the life of the church. Throughout the centuries, the church has celebrated January 1st as a day devoted to this one verse. It's a day in honor of the circumcision and the holy name of Jesus. I realize that it may seem odd to you to devote a day to commemorate these events. It may surprise you that the church thought it was so important that they put this day on the same level as every day devoted to one of the twelve apostles. And I also realize it may seem bizarre to look for guidance on the issue of identity in the events of our Lord's name, circumcision. But I promise you that these events have a direct bearing on the question of identity. And to show you what I mean, we're going to look at the Apostle Paul's words in our lesson this morning from Galatians chapter 4. Particularly verses 4 and 5 will help us see how the circumcision and the name of Jesus have tremendous implications when it comes to finding a secure identity. So turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. In verse 4, we're going to see how the Son of God came into the world. And in verse 5, we're going to see two reasons why He came into the world. So first, how did God come into the world? We are still in the 12 days of Christmas, and here in verse 4, we have one of the most clear-cut verses about Christmas in the entire Bible. When we think of the places in the Bible that speak about Christmas, we tend to think of the gospel accounts. We think of Luke's passage uh, this morning about the angels and the shepherds and the manger. But here in Galatians, what is particularly helpful is that Paul is not simply narrating the events as Luke does. Instead, under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul is giving God's own interpretation of the events of Christmas. And the first thing Paul wants us to see about Christmas is how God came into the world. He says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. This is perhaps the clearest statement in the entire Bible on the Incarnation. God became a man. Like every other human being, God was that Jesus Christ was born of a woman. He had a real human nature that was in every way like yours and mine, yet without sin. And He was subject to every trial and temptation that human beings experience. And the great mystery in all of this is that in doing so, He didn't set aside His divinity. He was not part man and part God. He was fully God and fully man. And this is the outrageous claim of Christians And it sets Christianity apart from every other world religion. Either this claim is true or it's false, but the one thing it cannot be is in harmony with the other belief systems of the world. To make it so is to strip Christianity of its very essence and to mar it beyond recognition. My friends, the first step on the road to finding a true, secure identity is to find out who Jesus truly is. He is God. He is God, the Son, born of a woman. But that's not all that the text says. It says that He was also born under the law. What does that mean? Well, this is where Jesus' circumcision comes into view. 
When Paul says he was born under the law, what he is saying is that God's Son was born in such a way that he was bound to keep the law. The very law that God gave His people is the same law to which He is now keeping Himself liable to. And all of this is symbolized in Jesus' circumcision. You see, the sign of God's law in the Old Testament was circumcision. Circumcision functioned much like a wedding ring for God's people. It set them apart and it reminded them of God's promises that He set His love upon them and that He was a husband to them. And because this relationship between God and His people was like that of a husband and a wife, the sign of circumcision, like a wedding band, functioned not only as a sign of His love, but also as an important reminder that God's people were to be faithful to Him alone. They were to be obedient and follow His law. So here in verse 4, By saying that God's Son was born under the law, Paul is letting us in on the significance of Jesus' circumcision. Yes, Jesus was born a Jew, and He would have to be circumcised on the eighth day to follow the law, but Paul wants us to see that there's more going on than meets the eye in Jesus' circumcision. He's saying for those who have eyes to see, what is actually going on in Jesus' circumcision is that God is submitting Himself to the same law He required of His people. Dorothy Sayers put it so well when she said, For whatever reason God chose to make man as He is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death, He had the honesty and the courage to take His own medicine. Whatever game He is playing with His creation, He has kept His own rules. And He has played fair. He can exact nothing from man that He has not exacted from Himself. My friends, God does not hold you to any standard that He ultimately does not hold Himself to. He came at Christmas not like some proud tyrant who remained above the demands of earthly life. He did not come presuming His credentials. Instead, He came as a baby, born of a woman, born under the law, subjecting Himself to the very law that He holds you and I to. Such was the manner of God's coming. But here's the critical question. Why Did he do that? Well, the next verse in Galatians gives us two reasons. The first reason is that the Son of God was born under the law in order to redeem those who were under the law. The word here, to redeem, means to deliver, to save. And this is precisely what the name Jesus means. Jesus means Savior. I think for most of us here, we know the importance of names. Charlestonians especially know that names are not insignificant or arbitrary. Family history and lineage is often bound up in a name. And names, they tell us something about your identity. They say something about who you are. But even for us, names don't carry the same weight that they did in the Bible. In the Bible, names were connected to God's unfolding purposes in history. Names in Scripture had divine significance to them. And never more important was the name given to the babe in the manger. Twice God sought to secure this name for this child. First, an angel appeared to Mary before she conceived, and another angel appeared to Joseph after she conceived, both instructing them to give the child the name Jesus. God took great 
care to ensure that this name would be given. No other name of God's would do, only the name Jesus. And that's because this name speaks most clearly of this child's position and his prerogative. He came for the purpose of saving. As the angel told Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. His mission is bound up in his name. As the theologian John Murray put it, emblazoned on this name Jesus is the dark and terrible reality of sin. One might think it would have been better to put the issue of sin in the background. Couldn't Jesus have come to save without advertising to the world that His central purpose was to deal with sin? But God in His wisdom, love, and grace thought otherwise. His name at the very outset makes it clear that He comes to reckon with sin and its effects. I hope you can see in this one sentence of Paul's in Galatians the significance of Jesus' circumcision and His name. The name of Jesus shows us what He intended to do, and the circumcision of Jesus shows us how He would do it. His name indicates that He was here to save His people from their sins, and His circumcision indicates that He would do it by fulfilling the law in their place. Jesus' circumcision shows us that even at eight days old, He was becoming a fit Savior by following the law. This child who would be different from all other people who came before and after Him, He would perfectly fulfill the law in His entire life. And unlike the first man, Adam, who believed the serpent and disobeyed God, Jesus would be a kind of second Adam and last Adam who would perfectly trust and obey God. And why is it so important that Jesus would perfectly follow the law? Because only a perfect law keeper can save lawbreakers. Only a perfect law keeper can save lawbreakers. And fulfilling the law at every point, Jesus was building up his ability to save lawbreakers. If the work of salvation can be compared perhaps to an athletic event, Jesus' circumcision was the first weight lifted in a long series of workouts that would prepare him for the cross. There, the symbolism of circumcision will reach its crescendo. For in circumcision, like all of God's sacramental signs, the sign of circumcision doesn't just convey blessings, it also portrays the curses for disobedience and faithlessness. Think about it. Baptism, without faith, shows us that we will drown in our own sins. Communion, without faith, shows us that our own blood will be shed for eternity for our sins. And circumcision without faith showed that God's people would be cut off from Him forever. You see, the sign of circumcision was a sign, yes, of God's blessing, but also it signified the curse for breaking God's law. But Paul, just a chapter before our lesson, in Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Christ became a curse for us at the cross. He underwent the curses displayed in circumcision at the cross for 
our disobedience. There He was cut off from His Father. He cried out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? It was the only time in all eternity that God the Son was cut off from the Father. He became like us in His incarnation. And He subjected Himself to the law in order that He might save us by His death and resurrection. That's the reason why the central image of Christianity isn't a manger, but a cross. And that brings us to my last point. The second and ultimate reason for Jesus being born under the law and redeeming His people is that they would become children of God. As wonderful as it is to be pardoned and cleansed, these are merely precursors to the greatest blessing that Jesus brings. Turning slaves into sons and daughters. The greatest blessing of God is making rebels into His children through adoption. Being His adopted child is the most secure and robust identity that anyone could have. It is the ultimate identity of every single Christian. Scholar J.I. Packer once remarked that if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. I think there are several reasons why this magnificent thought often lacks potency for the average Christian today. First, I think that the average person finds little attractiveness or power in being God's child because they think so lightly of God. They have small thoughts of God and great thoughts of the world and of themselves. They have small thoughts of sin, and therefore they also have small thoughts of God. It was Charles Spurgeon who said, too many think lightly of sin and therefore think lightly of the Savior. He who has stood before his God convicted and condemned with the rope around his neck is the man to weep for joy when he is pardoned, to hate the evil for which he has been given, forgiven, and to live to the honor of the Redeemer by whose blood he has been cleansed. Friends, if you want a secure and powerful identity, you need to see the greatness of God by seeing the greatness of your sin. A second reason people find this identity of being God's child so impotent is because I think the average Christian today believes that being God's child is a right that everybody has, that they could presume upon. They think everyone's a child of God, so what's the big deal about it? How often do you hear today in the world that we are all God's children? And while, yes, God did create all people in His image, and He grants equal and infinite worth to all people, it is simply not true that all people are God's children. It can't be squared with what God says in His Word. John, at the beginning of his Gospel, says, to all that did receive Jesus Christ, to all who believed in His name, He gave them the right to become children of God. Being a child of God is not a natural and inherent right. Ever since our first parents forfeited their place in God's family, human beings have been prodigals. And it took nothing less than the redemption of Jesus for God to adopt us as His sons and daughters that He might bring us back into the family. Friends, God's adoption is it's breathtaking. Just as in human adoption where children contribute nothing in the process, so too we contribute nothing in God's adoption. His adoption is purely a gift 
It must be given. And precisely because it's given, it can be a source of unshakable identity. You see, when you base your identity on something you do or something that comes from within you, it will forever be flimsy. But when it comes from outside of yourself, when it comes to you from the one in whom there is no variation or change, you can finally have something secure on which you can base your identity. Something that won't change tomorrow. Only then can you actually have the assurance, despite yours and my clumsiness, that you cannot tarnish or lose this gift. Because it never stemmed from you in the first place. Let me close with two incredible things that come with this new identity. First, it brings us unhindered access to God Himself. The story goes that following the Civil War, there was a Confederate soldier who was dejected and sitting outside the grounds of the White House. And a young boy approached him and and inquired why he was so sad. And the soldier described that he had tried to see President Lincoln and tell him all about why he was unjustly deprived of certain lands that were his in the South following the war. And every time he would go to enter the White House, the guards crossed their guns and they blocked the way to the door and they turned him away. So the boy motioned to the soldier to follow him. So he got up and they followed the boy to the entrance of the White House and to his surprise, the guards stood at attention, held their guns back and opened the door for him. They passed through the halls filled with members of cabinet and other high-ranking officials, and they proceeded to the library where President Lincoln was resting, and the little boy introduced the soldier to his father. The boy was Tad Lincoln. My friends, think about the power and the privilege enjoyed by the children of the president. Now, how much more is the power and privilege that ought to be enjoyed by the children of God? who created all things, who upholds all things by His hand, and whose eye is always on His children. There's something even more incredible than simply the status and access that belong to God's children. Unlike human adoption, becoming God's adopted child means being born of God. It means His adopted children share the same traits and mannerisms of their father. They bear a family likeness. If you lack any wonder at being a child of God, realize that in some mysterious way, like our collect and the Scriptures say, you partake of the very same nature of God. In 2009, the BBC published a study that showed a baby's cry matches its mother's language. A newborn child just two or three days old cries in a distinctive way, mimicking the sounds of its mother. They found that each newborn baby has its own cry melody, a specific pattern that sounds unique to his or her own cry. But more than that, they found the babies match their crying sounds to the intonations of their mother's voice. And it's the same with God's children. Paul says at the end of our passage, because you are sons, God has sent His Spirit into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. God hears His children's feeble cries and bears, and their children's voice bears a striking resemblance to Him. Christians have the Spirit of God within them. Friends, when you turn to Christ and become His adopted child, 
You have a new and unshakable identity. You no longer need people the way that you once did. Your accolades, your achievements, your relationships, they no longer constitute and contribute your ultimate identity, and therefore, the ice grip that you have on them can ease. With this identity, you can weather any storm. I wonder, are you suffering this morning? Know that you have not slipped the purview of your loving Heavenly Father. He is bringing about your greatest good because you are in His royal family. I wonder, are you tempted this morning? What incredible power there is at work in you. The same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is at work in you because you are in the family. He is at work in you making you able to defeat Satan and sin and even death. Are you plagued this morning with guilt and self-pity? Recall that you are His adopted child not by virtue of your failures or your successes. You are His unassailably. You are His because He chose you to love you before the foundation of the world. Such love will melt your heart and change your taste. Such love will cause you to flee all the more from sin. Such love does not define you by your failures and it makes you long to walk into the light. My friends, who are you? What is your identity? Does it come from inside of you? Is it dependent upon you in any way? There is something far more durable that is yours this very moment in Christ for you. May we come to know the great power and privilege and assurance there is in being God's adopted children. Amen.